Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your mercy this morning. Thank you for the mercy that saved us in our guilt and sin and misery. We cried out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, and you sent us home justified. Lord, your mercy keeps us and preserves us and sustains us day after day. There's new mercies every morning for every day's need. And thank you that as Jesus prayed earlier, we can go to your throne of grace and receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. So your mercy and grace are always available and always sufficient for every situation we are in. And uh, we ask that your mercy will be poured out on us as we open your word together. Would you cause us to hear your mercy in the morning? your grace and your truth. I pray for anyone who's here who doesn't know your saving mercy, who's just coming at you all wrong based on their own works or a misunderstanding of who you are. Lord, would you open their eyes to see who you really are and that they need you and only you to rescue them from sin and death and bring them to heaven. You're the only one who can do that. So Lord, draw near now. May you make your presence known to us. In Christ's name, amen. Before we look at our text for this morning, I want to reread a verse that we started at uh, when we began our study of the book of Job, and that is James 5.11. James says, you have heard of the endurance or the patience of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. So James is reminding us that as we read through the story of Job and see all these massive statements about God's sovereignty like we've seen the last two Sundays. And later we'll see chapter after chapter about his almighty power and his infinite wisdom. James says, don't forget about his mercy and his compassion. And it would be good to add to that Don't forget about his love. We are not fatalists who just shrug our shoulders and say, well, it is what it is. There's nothing we can do about it. God's sovereign. That's it. Just resign yourself to whatever happens is what's going to happen. If we have trusted in Christ, God is our Father in heaven who loves us and is committed to what is ultimately good for us. But his love might be different sometimes than we expect. And so turn to John chapter 11 for a moment. John chapter 11. 
We'll start with the first three verses. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, Jesus, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. So here's a serious need. Lazarus is very sick with a life-threatening illness that will end up taking his life. Here is an urgent request. Lord, please come quickly and heal him. And here is a close relationship. We're not asking Jesus to heal a random stranger. We are specifically told in verse 5, look at this. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So there would be an assumption, if not an expectation, that Jesus will arrive soon and heal Lazarus and restore him back to health. Keep reading. So we just saw, he whom you love is sick, verse 3. Look at verse 4. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So do you see that connection, that juxtaposition? Jesus loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, so he waits. He loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, therefore he remains two days longer. Now Mary and Martha and Lazarus might have thought, if Jesus loves us, why didn't he keep Lazarus from getting sick in the first place? Or, Jesus has the power to hear, heal long distance. We know he's done that before. I just read that in my quad time last yesterday. In John 4, Jesus is in Cana. This nobleman comes and says, my son is sick. And the son is in Capernaum. And Jesus heals him long distance. So Jesus didn't even have to come to Bethany to heal Lazarus. He could have just done it. Or, when he hears about this urgent need, he will hurry up and get here and heal Lazarus, because after all, he is the one that Jesus loves. But Jesus deliberately waits and doesn't show up until four days after the funeral. And the closest I can get at that is, you have a close family friend, and you have a medical emergency in your home, and you don't call 911, you've got the doctor's cell number because he's a close friend, you call him, and you just get an answering machine, but you say, hey, it's us, it's an emergency, can you come quick? It's life and death, and you leave the message, and you don't hear back, you don't hear anything, and then... Four days after the funeral, your friend, the doctor, shows up at your house. And what would you say? Well, here's what Martha said. Look at verse 21. First thing out of her mouth. 
Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 32, first thing out of Mary's mouth. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Look at what the friends that came for the funeral said. Verse 37, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? And the answer is yes. Jesus loves Lazarus and Mary and Martha. He can heal the sick, even long distance. And he deliberately waited until after Lazarus was dead and buried four days. In other words, Jesus' love, which is clearly spelled out in the text, did not spare them from pain or grief or confusion, or a lot of unanswered questions. And in a similar way, the fact that God loves us does not mean he will spare us from pain and suffering and losses in this life. He has good and wise purposes, which are for our ultimate good and his glory, even if we can't possibly see or guess how that could be true at the time. And I appreciate what Jesus shared about it's in the valleys more often that this sanctification process seems to go into overdrive than just when we're reading a book in our room. It just seems like those tough times are when God is at work in a special way. So all that's introduction to where we're going today. James assumes we've heard of the patience of Job, and in our text for today, we will see the impatience of Job. So if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Job chapter 3, as we continue our study in this Old Testament book. Job chapter 3. The last few verses of chapter 2 tell us about the arrival of Job's friends, and Lord willing, we'll look at what they have to say to Job next Sunday. But just, let's read verse 13 of chapter 2. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. And then after a whole week of no one saying anything to anybody, Job breaks the silence in verse 1 of chapter 3. Afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born and the night which said a boy is conceived. And he goes on for about seven more verses like that. That's a lot different than The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's a lot different than, shall we not receive good from the Lord and evil or adversity also. Job curses the day of his birth and the night he was conceived. He wishes he had never been born. He says it again in chapter 10, if you want to turn over a few chapters Chapter 10, verse 18 and 19. This is addressed to God. 
Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Would that I had died and no I had seen me. I should have been as though I had not been carried from womb to tomb. So instead of celebrating birthdays as a happy day like we do, Job wishes that date could be removed from the calendar, that's in verses 4 through 10, and that he just never had come into existence. Jeremiah had some similar feelings that we read in Jeremiah 20, if you want to turn to that. Jeremiah 20, verse 14 and 15. Cursed be the day when I was born. Let the day not be blessed when my mother bore me. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, saying, A baby boy has been born to you and made him very happy. Verse 18, Why did I ever come forth from the womb to look on trouble and sorrow so that my days have been spent in shame? Well, Job goes on to complain that if he had to be born, why couldn't he have died in Childbirth. Look at verse 11. Why did I not die at birth, come forth from the womb, and expire? Why couldn't I have been a stillborn instead of surviving the birth process and having to enter into a miserable life? And then let's read 20 through 26. Why is light given to him who suffers and life to the bitter of soul, who long for death, but there is none, and dig for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice greatly and exult when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? For my groaning comes at the sight of my food, my cries pour out like water, For what I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet, and I am not at rest, but turmoil comes. In other words, why do I have to keep on living when I wish I could just die? The only thing I'm looking forward to is death, because that is when I finally will get rest from my misery. Jonah had a similar desire to die and get it over with in Jonah chapter 4, if you want to turn to that passage. Jonah chapter 4, remember he was waiting for Nineveh to be destroyed. God spared them in his mercy. Jonah is not happy about it. Chapter 4, verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, do you have a good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. Then he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head to deliver him from the discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came and the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have a good reason to be angry even to death. 
There's a couple more verses that express how Job is feeling in the midst of his relentless pain. And again, don't forget, he's covered with boils, these pus-filled blisters, hundreds of them from the top of his head to the sole of his feet. He's scraping himself with a piece of broken pottery. He's tormented, if not tortured, day and night. And so in verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 1, He says, I loathe my own life. I will give full vent to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. Loathe means to hate or detest with great disgust. So Job is saying, I hate my life. It is unbearably awful. I don't want to do this anymore. I just want to die. And then look at chapter 19, verse 6. 19, verse 6. Know then that God has wronged me. Job is convinced and he wants others to know that God has wronged him and how he has been treated. And we will see how Elihu and then God himself respond to that statement later in the book. Job has crossed a line here and he will be taken to task for crossing that line. But for now, we need to recognize Job is criticizing God for giving him life in the first place. He's questioning the wisdom of God and continuing to sustain his life. And he's complaining that God has wronged him for causing so much suffering in his life. So what should we think about Job's impatient outburst? Or what if it's a friend who says, it's kind of how I feel. Or, what if it's how we're feeling that we just haven't expressed it out loud? So here are three observations to help us get at those questions. First, let's look at how Job himself wants his words to be taken. Go to chapter 6. And verse 26. He says... He's talking to his three friends. Do you intend to reprove my words when the words of one in despair belong to the wind? And then in verse 14, for the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend so that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. In other words, when people are despairing because they are in such great pain, don't be too quick to pounce on something they might say at such times. Instead of judging or correcting statements that aren't quite what they should be, chalk them up as words for the wind. Be gracious and make allowances for the fact that people say things when they are hurting that they would not say otherwise. So maybe you need a category for that. 
some of the things people say in pain are words for the wind. They'll just blow away. Give it some time and they'll get their equilibrium back again enough to not talk that way. But be patient until then. Second, is it okay to honestly express our feelings to God? So let's look at some examples of godly people expressing pain and anguish and confusion to God in their prayers. David is a man after God's own heart. Look at Psalm 13. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all day long? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? That's pretty straightforward. Or in Psalm 43, he asked God, Why have you rejected me? Haman wrote a psalm that's called a mesquil, a teaching or instructive psalm for the benefit of others. He's, look at Psalm 88. This is not just his private journal entry. He writes this for the benefit of us and other readers. Read the first three verses. O Lord, the God of my salvation, I have cried out day and in the night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul has had enough troubles. I'm done. I don't want any more troubles. I've got plenty. And then look at 13 through 15. But I, O Lord, have cried out to you for help. And in the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I was afflicted and about to die from my youth on. I suffer your terrors. I am overcome. And then one more. Listen to Jeremiah as he prays during the siege of Jerusalem. Go to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter Verse 1 and 2. I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. God's making me walk in darkness, not in light. Verse 17. My soul, and this keeps going all the way. We'll just fast forward to 17 and 18. My soul has been rejected from peace, I have forgotten happiness, so I say my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. So no peace, no happiness, no strength, no hope. That's how Jeremiah's feeling. And we not only have some examples of such honest praying, there are some verses that encourage us to freely express our feelings to God. So go to Psalm 62. Verse 8, Psalm 62, verse 8. Earlier in the psalm, David has said, I will not be shaken. We sang that this morning, I will not be shaken. He says that twice, I will not be shaken. Now he turns to us and addresses us and says in verse 8, Trust in him at all times, O people, not just 
good times, but trust him in the bad times. Trust him at all times, oh people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Just pour it out. Just let it just come out. Something similar in Lamentations 2.19. This is Jeremiah talking to us or to his readers. 2.19. Arise. This is Lamentations 2.19. Arise, cry aloud in the night. At the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. And then look at what Hannah says in 1 Samuel 1. 1 Samuel 1, verse 10. She, greatly distressed, literally bitter of soul, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Verse 15. Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have not drunk wine or strong drink. But I have poured out my soul before the Lord. So pouring out the soul before the Lord meant weeping and expressing the bitterness of her heart. Just pouring it out. So we don't have to pretend that we're doing better than we really are. God already knows our hearts anyway. We're not going to fake him out. We don't have to use nice or pious language when addressing God. We can be gut honest with God and pour out our groaning hearts to Him. So third is the question, is it okay to be angry at God? People do get mad at God in times of suffering. I've talked with some of them over the years. And I just... Replayed the tapes. I thought specifically of one man whose life was unraveling and he was mad at God for not intervening to help him. Didn't spare that family from unraveling. And in our conversation, he said some very dishonoring things about God. Is that okay? Or is that wrong? I worked with hospice bereavement for a number of years and one of the resources we used to hand out to people in grief was an article called Where is God? I'll just read first paragraph and then a sentence after that. That's a good question, where is God? When a loved one has died, we have a variety of thoughts about God and not all of them are pleasant. Many of us find comfort in God. Others may be very angry at God. Blaming God for letting the death happen. Anger is a common and often very strong component of grief. Sometimes you might feel angry towards God. That is okay. God can take it. A few years later, I was invited to speak to a support group of grieving parents uh, who had lost a child of any age, young kid, teenager, adult children. Uh, They were starting a support group at Christy Smith Funeral Home, and the director from hospice had gone over to Christy Smith, so uh, she invited me to, to come and speak, and this is what she wrote in the letter to get me ready for it. Some of the questions they may challenge you with are, 
Where was God when my child died? Why didn't he intervene if he is all-powerful? How can I continue to believe and pray to a God who I feel didn't answer my prayer when I asked him to watch over and protect my children? What kind of God would take away my child? And as we talked on the phone, you may have to address their anger towards God and some of their misunderstandings of who God is. So I go to Christy Smith's funeral home. There's about a dozen people there. And we went around the room and just shared names and the story of their loss. And so here's a couple and just one sad story after another. Car accident, leukemia, or just, it was gut-wrenching to hear all these stories. And so now it's my turn to talk. What do you say to a dozen parents who have lost a child? We said, remember, the in chapter 1, we talked about Job having to bury his ten children. That's just so unnatural. Children bury their parents, not parents bury their children. So, what do you say? So, I, just, I said three things. One, God understands and cares about your sorrow. Two, I mean, I talked for a while, and then two, God is the only one who ultimately can give you comfort in this sorrow. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up all their wounds, literally binds up all their sorrows, Psalm 147, 3. And then because I had been specifically asked to address the fact that these parents are angry at God, that is the elephant in the room, I got to ask about that. We've got to talk about is that okay or not. And I made reference to my little article from hospice. Where is God? I still have it. Said that's what we hand out in hospice. But I have to respectfully disagree with what that article says. And here's why. So I'll share with you the gist of what I shared with a little extra bonus material. So let's start with a definition of anger. Get up in Webster's. A strong feeling of displeasure and usually antagonism. A violent passion of the mind excited by a real or supposed injury. An intense emotional state state induced by displeasure. You could just summarize it, a feeling and expression of strong disapproval toward a person who we feel has wronged us. A strong feeling and expression of disapproval toward a person who we feel has wronged us. Kids get mad at parents when they don't get their way. Somebody was just telling me the other day about their kid having a tantrum and how fun that is. Parents get angry at kids when they don't meet our expectations and don't cooperate with our plan. And I suppose sometimes it's righteous anger. 
But let's face it, most of the time it's just plain old unrighteous anger, right? Parents and kids, both. That tamper, temper tantrum, I don't see as righteous anger. It's called, I didn't get my way. So, let's frame the question. Is there such a thing as righteous anger toward God? Has God ever actually wronged us? Is there ever a time when we could justify feeling a strong disapproval of what God has done or not done? So... I want to start with Jerry Bridges. I've encountered a number of Christians who are angry at God for some reason. What are we to say to people who are desperately hurting and feel that God has let them down or is even against them? Is it okay to be angry toward God? Most pop psychology would answer yes. Just venture feelings toward God. I've even read the statement, it's okay to be angry with God. He's a big boy. He can handle it. In my judgment, that is sheer blasphemy. Let me make a statement loud and clear. It is never okay to be angry at God. Anger is a moral judgment, and in the case of God, it accuses him of wrongdoing. It accuses God of sinning against us by neglecting us or in some way treating us unfairly. It also is often a response to our thinking that God owes us a better deal in life than we are getting. I acknowledge that believers can and do have momentary flashes of anger at God. I have experienced this myself. How then can we deal with our temptation to be angry at God? Must we stuff our feelings and live in some degree of alienation from God? No, that is not the biblical solution. The answer lies, first of all, in a well-grounded trust in the sovereignty, wisdom, and love of God. Second, we should bring our confusion and perplexity to God in a humble, trusting way. We could pray something like this. God, I know you love me, and I also know that your ways are often beyond my understanding. I admit I am confused at this time because I do not see the evidence of your love toward me. Help me, by the power of your Spirit, to trust you and not give in to the temptation to be angry at you. I just find that so helpful. So let's just review a few things that we know about God. One, God is always and only righteous. He always does what is absolutely right. He never does anything wrong. So let's just look at a couple verses about that. Deuteronomy chapter 32 Deuteronomy 32, verse 3 and 4. This is the song of Moses. He says in verse 3, I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright. Is he or Psalm ninety two verse fifteen? Psalm ninety two verse fifteen to declare that the Lord is upright 
He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Jonathan Edwards said, nothing is more impossible than that God should act amiss. Amiss means wrongly or imperfectly. That's impossible for God to do something less than perfect or to do something wrong. Job 36, Elihu will remind Job of that. Job 36, verse 23. Who has appointed him his way and who has said, you have done wrong? Well, Job had said that. And Elihu and later God will say, no, you are not in the position to say God did something wrong. So God is always and only righteous. Second, he is always and only good. Psalm 119 verse 68 says, you are good and you do good. And Psalm 145 says in verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. So God is never mean or unkind. All that he does is kind. And last, God is always and only wise. Psalm 147 Verse 5 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. Infinite. Or Romans 11, as Paul cranks up his doxology after talking about God's sovereign ways in chapters 9 through 11, he breaks out in verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Nobody. It's just too deep. It's, we're, we're trying to wade in the Marianas Trench that's seven miles down. It's just too deep for us. So can you see why it is so out of place for finite, fallen human beings to accuse the infinitely wise, perfectly righteous, absolutely good God with wronging us? So here's a quote from... John Piper, he has a, I guess it's called a podcast, uh, called Ask Pastor John. And he got a question from Brian a few months ago. Brian asked, quote, I'm wondering if we can be honestly angry at God for the things that happen to our lives. Dr. Piper says, the short answer is no, never. It is never right, never good, never merely neutral to feel anger at God. Never. Paul imagines a situation where a man 
doesn't approve of the way God is acting. And this man expresses this in very forceful terms in, of resistance to God's ways. It's described in Romans 9, 18 to 20. And he quotes Romans 9, 18. So then God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will the thing molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? So here's a situation where a human being watches God's action and does not like what he sees. And Paul doesn't say it makes him angry. He just says it makes him question God. Who can resist your will? Who? Why do you still find fault? And Paul responds to this kind of questioning of God with, Who do you think you are, O oh man, to get in God's face about the way he acts? That's a pretty strong rebuke. So if Paul says that the mere words of questioning God are out of place, what would he say if those questioning words were enforced with strong emotion and anger? He would say they're doubly out of place. It's not right for a creature to call into question his maker and doubly wrong for a creature to back that up with the force of an angry, emotional no to God. Anger at a person is always always implies strong disapproval. If you are angry at me, you think I have done something I should not have done. This is why being angry at God is never right. It is wrong, always wrong, to disapprove of God for what he does and permits. And he quotes Genesis 18.25, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? It is arrogant for finite, sinful creatures to disapprove of God for what he does and permits. We may weep over the pain. We may be angry at sin and Satan. But God does only what is right. Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Revelation 16, 7. Just talked to Scott Pittman this week. Lord willing, he was coming the end of April, so save the date. Last Sunday in April, Scott Pittman will be here. So, and we just uh, reminisced, because I want to make sure I had all my facts straight, about his time in an Afghan prison. If you don't know the story, Scott served as an international partner in Afghanistan and uh, was falsely accused of murdering his next-door neighbor and ends up as an American in an Afghan jail for two weeks. And he says, I asked why. This doesn't make any sense. I think we'd all say that's fair. But he added, I didn't shake my fist at God I bowed and said, you're God. I think the same is true for us. We will experience pain and suffering that doesn't make any sense. But instead of getting angry at God because we don't understand, we bow before him because he's God and we trust that he is doing all things well according to his good and wise and loving plan. Remember, that's where we started. Don't forget the love in this mix of sovereignty. That's 
sovereignty is being driven by a loving plan. It's how he can accomplish all things for our good. Because he's sovereign. If he wasn't sovereign, he couldn't pull that off. We need a sovereign God to carry out loving plans. Well, as we close, do you have a right relationship with God? God is showing you that things are not right with him. First, acknowledge your relationship with God is broken because of your sin. Isaiah 59, 2 says, your sins have caused a separation between you and your God. So there's this barrier. Turn from sin and going your own way and turn from trying to make things right with God by your own efforts. Titus 3, 5 says, he saved us not according to works we have done in righteousness, but according to his, that's the word, Mercy, there it is again, mercy, not merit, mercy. I didn't earn it, I can't earn it, I can't deserve it, I can't achieve it. It's sheer, free mercy. And so I trust Christ alone to restore a right relationship with God, believing his death on the cross is the only way that barrier of my sin could be removed Believing his resurrection from the dead shows he's the only one who can rescue from the power of sin and death. Seven weeks after the first Good Friday and Easter, Peter is preaching to the crowd in Jerusalem, including people that were involved in putting Jesus to death. And he says in verse 36, Therefore, let the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself, And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you that through your mercy, you offer a way back to yourself, to sinners like us who could never have found a way, weren't even looking for a way back to you. Thank you that you didn't make it dependent on us meeting conditions, because we could never do that. Thank you that you provided Christ to die and rise again. Thank you that you did everything necessary to bring us back to you. I pray for anyone who's here who's never put their hope and trust in Christ, that even today um, they would look to him for mercy. And Lord, um, just thank you for the book of Job and what we've seen today and seen so far. And uh, Lord, we bow before your sovereignty. We're thankful for your love. We don't understand all your ways and we can't. Your ways are high above our ways. Your thoughts are high above our thoughts, higher than the heavens are above the earth. So, Lord, give us faith because we can't walk by sight. Enable us to trust because we don't understand. Um, Lord, we want to honor you in how we handle the afflictions and adversities of this life and not dishonor you. So work in us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to stand and sing.